Center and moved at a charge conference that we should deploy a building. <laughs> committee. <laughs> committee. I like it. Committee. Who would hire a design build? Firm through it through this process. This reserved a 92% affirmation. Things were moving, but still, we were years away from the build campaign. So, the the building committee. began meeting the very same summer that we launched our massive Feeding Lunch to Youth program and the very same summer that we were serving as the epicenter for the United Methodist Commission on Relief flood recovery effort, some weeks hosting over 4,000 volunteers at two camps and 42 church buildings, including our own. The committee met several dozen times and finally found in the city of Marion the property, the farm field, on which we felt compelled to purchase and upon which we felt the Lord was calling us to build. So the Believe campaign began, and we raised $1.4 million. You know, if you're a visitor here, this is how we start every week. Um, The Believe campaign began. We raised $1.4 million. We thought would be enough to secure the land. However... Our committee and our realtor, through patient, deliberate negotiations, secured the land for a million dollars less than originally priced. And on December 30th, 2010, we brought for $800,000 the property on which we can build. (laughs) The Believe campaign was successful. The land is ours. And the committee brought to us and to our charge conference approved at 92% a master plan for our new facilities. Time had come now to begin raising the funds for our facilities. So at this time last year, the build (laughs) campaign was conceived. Now, you know this is a huge risk, a huge task, and an opportunity that befits our faith and our God. So we began with a huge goal, and we are aspiring towards it. Many folks have been involved in our campaign. Over six dozen individuals have volunteered countless hours, making calls on congregation members in person, on the phone, in coffee shops, via email, in the U.S. mail. And I praise God, and I thank all of our volunteers for their laborers to date. So where are we at? This morning as we worship, over 330 of us have become donors to date, and I know that many more of you will follow. As of Wednesday... We have raised $2,724,303, which indicates that by the end of our three-year campaign, we will likely hit and most likely exceed the goal of $3.5 million. So thank you, huh? How about that? So, we build... Not, not because we can, but because for our God we feel we should. We build. Because, because we know, we know that God has great plans for our city, and we know Marion First United Methodist Church is to be at the center of that plan. So glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah. Praise the Lord and thank you for your sacrificial generosity. 
This is what we see when we open the scriptures this morning from chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring back the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble buried as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. And then from chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Ilu in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Let's pray together. Lord, as the Jews rebuilt their walls and temples out of the rubble heap that surrounded them, we're reminded, Lord, that you can build whatever you see fit, no matter what anyone else says. And we're thankful for that truth this morning, Lord, for many of us today have lives that need to be rebuilt, have relationships that need to be rebuilt, have a faith that needs to be rebuilt. And though the world around us might look at us and ridicule us and say, what are those feeble Christians doing? Father, we know that with you all things are possible. And you can build or rebuild anything that you see fit. And for that, we give you thanks today. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you are rebuilding us, that you touch our lives, those high moments of rejoicing and celebration like what we experience today. But also, Lord, for those times when our spirits are low and we need your strength. Lord, we pray for those today who physically need rebuilding. For Steve Larson, Joyce Abadili, Myrna Tweed, Suzanne Pollard, and Joyce Hell. Lord, they've been hospitalized this week, and our prayer is that they would be rebuilt by the presence and the joy that accompanies it. And Lord, we also pray for your blessings of love and mercy to fall on Ken Stanford and his family following the death of his sister, Adrienne, on Friday. Lord, rebuild their hearts as they deal with their grief. Lord, all these things we lift up to you, knowing that you care deeply for us. In the name of Jesus, our mighty Savior, who when asked how we should pray, said, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 
and the power and the glory forever. Um, the second thing I want to tell you about this, um, and, and some of you know, and if not, you're, you're getting told this. This will be the last sermon I preach until uh, uh, Palm Sunday um, tomorrow. Um, I'll be going on a renewal leave. I've, I've never had one in my ministry, and my district superintendent said, hey, you're supposed to take one every four years. And I said, well, I really don't want one. He says, we really weren't negotiating. So, um, you know, so I'm uh, looking forward to going out on, on, on four weeks of renewal and, and to look at new ministries that have churches that have done what we've done already or what we're doing uh, and done it well and succeeded in it. So, so pray for us as we go on that. So um, our sermon for today is like this. Now, if you've just come in and you haven't been part of it the last few years, it's going to feel like this is a sermon about buildings. But this sermon... <laughs> I got a wedding at one. We can't do that the whole time, all right? So, yeah. Uh, well, that would make this longer, wouldn't it? Uh, oh, and I forgot to say that, that when I'm gone, Pastor Keith will be in charge. Yeah, well, thank you. That was obligatory right there. That was, that was obligatory. Thank you for that, Chris. So, so even though we're going to talk a little bit about buildings during this talk, what I really want to talk about is what the community does, the community of faith does as a celebration. I, I live with a two-year-old Sunday school teacher, so we were talking about the lesson a little bit last night. And I really think that the, the lesson that two-year-olds got today is not much different than the lesson we, may, we have. You see, someone asked me, why do we need church buildings? I said, well, you know, a, a person of faith communes with God, who we see not with our eyes, through prayer. And we, we sometimes feel and, and sense the responses around. And we also serve God in, in a lot of different ways. And we praise God. And sometimes it comes to us as a community of faith that we say, we want to do something tangible with our monies and with our hands that builds the kingdom of God. And so throughout Christian history, throughout religious history for that matter, <clears throat> men and women have built edifices to God's glory and through which the community of faith and the people of a community uh, around them can be served. So, so as we look at this scripture today, we need to understand that, that as, we, as the Lord helps congregations build things to his glory... It's through them that he has praised, and of course, men and women. So let's, uh, are, are served. So let's take a quick survey of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are back-to-back in the uh, Old Testament, and they, they run one continual story. So here's what happens. Years prior to the life of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jews were displaced from Israel to Babylon. That's modern-day Iraq. So they were three, four hundred miles away from the holy city of Jerusalem, where, of course, all good Hebrew people want to be. One day, Ezra, who had risen in the kingdom to quite a high status, was serving the king, and he came before the king, and the king said, I've never seen you sad in the 13 years you've served me. I've never seen your face sad before. What, what troubles you, Ezra? And Ezra says, oh, my Lord, how could I be happy when the temple of my living God is lays in ruins, and no one can worship him there. And so through a period of negotiations, the king lets Ezra come back to Jerusalem, and he lets him pass a sign-up sheet to all the, Babylon, to all the Jews that were captive in Babylonia, Babylonia and 42,000 of them 
signed up to make the long journey home. Not only that, but Ezra asked for some building supplies, and the king said, take what you need. And he did. That's a summary of about eight chapters of Ezra. You're welcome for the short version. Then Ezra gets to, to, to Jerusalem, and against great odds, and against great opposition, frankly, he began to rebuild the temple. And as the temple is rebuilt, and the temple that Ezra builds, and this is important for those of you Old Testament scholars, you know this, the temple that Ezra built was the longest lasting of the temples in Jerusalem. Solomon's temple didn't last this long, and nor did Caesar's temple last this long. Um, Ezra's temple was the one that lasted the longest duration, about 500, a little bit over 500 years, the Jewish people used that temple that Ezra built in this story, several hundred years before Christ. And what happens then among the people of Israel that had been brought back to the holy city of Jerusalem was this dynamic revival was going on because Ezra was rebuilding a nation on godly and holy principles. So then Nehemiah, who had also come along on the journey, in what appears to be a miracle, helps the folks of Jerusalem build their walls back up to half their height. Now, and actually completely build them in 52 feet, uh, in 52 days. Now, what's important about this is I want to explain to you building um, products of Jerusalem. In the walls around the city and in the walls of the temple, most of them are made of stones that are about the length of my arm's reach, about just light of six feet. They're about 25 to 30 inches tall, and they're about the same uh, width. Now, upon each other, they have, you know, kind of creases that they set into on top of each other like a giant Lego, and they're just friction fit. You don't put up a building like that easily, nor do you take one down like that easily. And when the uh, Babylonian uh, captivity was began, the, the Babylonians couldn't tear the temple down very easily. So what they did was they deforested Israel, cut all the trees down, piled up against the walls of the temple, piled up against the walls of the holy city, and set everything on fire and burned the fire so hot that it eventually would pop the, the bricks. Down in pieces they would come. Okay? So, I mean, when they took down these buildings and the walls, they were really taking them down. And the walls were not dog fences. Okay? These walls were 20 feet below the surface and 20 feet above the surface. And they were meant to be a fortress for the city. And the holy city of Jerusalem is 320 acres square. So half a section, if for a farm reference, of, of land it is uh, enclosed in those walls. And the walls are still in ruin when Nehemiah and Ezra get there <clears throat> because from the Babylonian attack of 150 years prior. And so, with great opposition, but permission, Nehemiah and his group begins to build the walls. There was so much opposition that at times, as one person worked on the wall, another Hebrew would stand behind him with a sword to protect him. And the walls were protected day and night. Sometimes the opposition got so great that even the workers, as they were working, were carrying swords. So there was much opposition. And not only that, in the story that Keith read to us, you had Sanballat and his crew constantly deriding the Israelis. You're not going to be able to hold that wall up. It's no, no bigger than a fox. Uh, you know, if a fox ran up, it would fall down. <coughs> and yet the people had a mind to work. And, and when they worked, rather than having all these crews go out, all Nehemiah did was say, go to the piece of wall closest to your house and work there. 
And so around the city, they built. And the wall was finished. Now I tell you all that to get to this. There will always be much opposition to God's work. Always. There's always going to be much opposition to God's work. One of those oppositions is just the simple fear, human fear and apprehension that comes up. I know when, the, when, when, when Nehemiah and Ezra got to, to Jerusalem, certainly people were saying, we can't do it. It's too big. We thought it was like a little building, and we thought it was like a small wall. But we can't do that much. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough stuff. And no matter what generation is, when, 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 when God has a work for the people to do, there's much opposition to it. And part of it is our own human fears and apprehension. And then, of course, some of that resistance or opposition to God's work is simply the unbelieving world. There are lots of people in the world that, that simply don't believe in Christ, and they say about the church, which is me and you, those Christian people are fools. They don't understand business. They don't understand money. They certainly believe in magic and hokum, and they're basing their lives on something that makes no sense. And they say it loudly. And if you've got cable or the internet, they say it without restraint. There's always going to be opposition to God's work, sometimes even in the house of God. Now that's one side of the ledger. Importantly, on the other side of the ledger is this. There will always be support for God's work as well. There's always going to be support for God's well work. God's Holy Spirit, when earnestly requested by his people, comes and fleshes the work. You see, God has given this opportunity to us. It's interesting. It doesn't exist in any other religion. God has told us that we can influence Him. And the way we influence Him is by earnestly going to Him in prayer. And praying not for our will to be done, but that we might help Him do His will, that we might be useful tools in the, in the doing of His will. And, and we pray. And I know we say this at our staff meetings all the time. We pray that our good ideas might be killed or eradicated and God might be placed, God's ideas might be placed in their stay. Because when human ideas and God's Holy Spirit come into confluence, then God absolutely powers the people and gives them the support they need. And the second thing that is always true, there's always support in God's work is the perseverance of a faithful and enthusiastic people who have a mind to work. In the Bible that I study for at the end, Keith, Keith's Bible, the Bible we share in the pews, says at the end, they built the walls to half their height for the people worked enthusiastically. The Bible I read at home says, and the people built the wall to half their heights for the people had a mind to work. You see, the story of Nehemiah and Ezra, while historical and potent, has sequels. Let me tell you about one of them. For the people who had a mind to work, the Spirit preceded us, we that are Marian Methodists. Take a look at this first picture. In May 1840, <clears throat> John Hodges, Methodist circuit rider, appointed out of Rock River, Illinois, was sent out to the little burg, a little 1,200-person city, a few hundred, less than that, actually, to uh, gather up and start a Methodist class, which is how Methodist congregations were formed. Now, not that tree, but a tree just like it was positioned pretty close, if you're familiar with Marion, 
at the corner of South 11th Street and 1st Avenue in Marion. And under that tree, Brother John Hodges, two married couples and four young men held the first Methodist meeting in Marion. Now as time went by, the congregation grew a little bit and they decided they wanted to move inside. So if you can picture in your mind where the current Marion Library is, across the, in its parking lot on the far side, on the 10th Street side, there was a small old courthouse. The courthouse had by then moved to Cedar Rapids, and though the courthouse was right there facing the train tracks that have long ago been removed, one of our members bought the, the, the old Lynn County Courthouse. His name was Oliver Hall, and the church began to meet in there. Now, just across the street from that was a small property. And in 1850, the church, the church members began to build a new structure on what now is the corner of 10th, and 6th, 10th Street and 6th Avenue. You've seen that building. Now, depending on how long you've been in Marion, you might have grown up with this as the YMCA. When I grew up, it was Barnes & Hunter, Napa Auto Parts. And you'd go in and order your auto parts stand at the free throw line. But before all that, today it's the Marion Historical Society. But before all that, it was the Marion Methodist Church. When it was first being built, the congregation was facing great opposition because now there were 1,200 people in Marion. And that building was going to seat nearly 200 people. And that was an extravagant claim for the Methodists to make. And so the people in the city, particularly the people that worked for the railroad, thought this was a ludicrous vision for these stiff-necked, hard-working, work-a-day railroad guys to build this church. It was silly. They didn't have enough money to do it. They couldn't possibly make it go. And so for a while, as a matter of fact, as the church was being built, they couldn't get enough money. So they met in the basement for several years. All they could finish was the bottom half of it. And then when they put enough money together, they built it to its top. So even though there was much opposition, the people had faithfulness and they had a mind to work. And the congregation flourished. Now, interesting story in the life of this congregation that in the midst of this congregation flurry, there even became some opposition within the church. Because there was one group that said, hey, we need a bigger church now. This is too full. We need to build another church. There was another that says, no, we love this church. We want to stay right here. The other group, led by a guy named J.B. Young, said, we're going to go build it anyway. So they went down to the corner of 13th Street and 6th Avenue, which is where Marion City Hall now stands, and they built this next one. If those of you that grew up here, that was probably an apartment building during your growing up days, right down by C.B. Vernon. But they withdrew from the first church, and that church began to get momentum. And the other church says, this is silly. Those are the people we love. Those are the people we like to be at worship with. Let's move. So they sold the building that is now the Marian Historical Society, and they moved over to this building and worshiped together. And with almost within a couple of years, they were only in this building 20 years, within a couple of years of that huge brick facility, it was overfilled. And while they were building it, while they were meeting in there, the, the, the folks in the town said, that thing is right on the railroad tracks. It's hot and it's dirty and it smells like cows all the time. It smells like coal in the front yard, things coming by. And, and, and the, those methods are crazy to have such a big building, but you know what? There was such support for it. And the people had a mind to her that they built, but they started to outgrow it. And so then this idea came up. Take a look at this. This idea came up. That was 1890. And then by 1895, 1890, the congregation brought the land that you're sitting in right now. And by 1895, Father Bromwell, who was the only remaining member of that group that met under the tree 55 years previous, stood somewhere in this area right here, 
stuck a shovel in the ground, and turned it over. Now, the talk in Marion, once again, was how stupid are those Methodists? There was 5,000 people in this town, and these Methodists were building this building that was going to have 1,300 seats. It was going to have an electric chandelier light that hung from the ceiling, a balcony that sat 400 people, big frescoes everywhere. Obviously, it's been remade, huh? Big frescoes everywhere. And for crying out loud, it was going to cost them, with the, with the pipe organ, $30,000. And though there was great opposition, even in some of the folks that were meeting down at the corner of 6th and 13th Street, though the railroad workers, as you see depicted in this main work, some of them were split. People began to sell eggs. They began to do sewing. The people had a mind to work. And they built an edifice like this. Remember, there was a giant edifice right across the street to the glory of God in the Presbyterian Church that was here two, two years prior. Why did the Methodists have to show off? Because it was to God be the glory. So they built what they felt at that time was befitting to our Lord because they had a mind to work. Now later on, we had to add, do a little addition. Take a look at this next picture. In the 60s, the church was expanding and it was growing. The church had come to such a point that the Sunday school classes were being held everywhere, and I mean everywhere. Remember that we were retrofitted with indoor plumbing. That's how old this building is. But downstairs in our kitchen, we had to hold Sunday Sunday school class in that glorious, wonderful, pristine kitchen. Can you imagine that? We were filled to the grave. And some of us grew up where there was banners and barriers everywhere up and down the hallways of this place. And then in the 60s, in the baby boom, they built this building. And when I talked to some of my older members, now some gone, there was some discussion as to why we should do this. That maybe the church should just have another Methodist church. Maybe the church was getting too big and it should get smaller so we could just serve the people we needed to serve. And certainly the cost of $168,000 for an education building seemed way too much at that time. Plus, we were going to have to displace a couple of people that had lived on 8th Avenue for a long time, taking their homes and knocking them down. And also, of course, buying an old doctor's office that became the church office for many, many years. But regardless of the opposition, the prayers of the people, and the mind of a people that came together to work, built that education building that just earlier today was house of our journey land and many adult Bible studies. And as our nursery is there right now, Time went on. Again, the church was growing. And in that same picture, you see that entryway. And in 1995, it was discerned. After, after Vision 2000 was held in 1990, it was discerned that, that after, even while there was great opposition to throwing another dollar at this old building, it was discerned that the best thing for the church at that particular moment in time, because they couldn't afford to move away, was to build a huge addition on the side of the building, a three-story addition that included a choir room, an elevator, a handicap entrance, and some other things. And there was opposition, as a matter of fact. It's one of the closest votes that I can see recorded uh, in our past history as to whether or not to build this or not. But the prayers of the people worked together. The congregation had a mind to work. And for about $1.2 million, they knocked down the old church office building, which some people were very upset about. 
and built a new annex. Just a year later, a couple of members of the church gave to us the old Marion Library, the Carnegie Center, which we now use for 412 and, and for some of our community ministries and where our staff is, all because, for God's sake, the people had a mind to work. And then we did this. Take a look at this next slide. On December 30th, 2010, we purchased the land on the corner of REC Drive and Highway 13 for a future building project for new facilities. And let me tell you as the pastor, because this I was here for, it was not all happy furry bunnies and warm fuzzies to get there. There was opposition. I remember standing right here in this spot down below here after service one day, and a friend my own age group said to me, Mike, I joined this church, meaning this church. I don't want to go to a new one. And I understood. And I'm grateful, actually, for the opposition that has been faithful to the project. And I'm grateful for the fact that, that people have stayed faithful, not to their own mindset, but to where the Lord was taking us. Because over the process and through the years, we've, gone, you know, we've now come not to 69%, which is what built that, built that annex, but to 90-some percent, 92, 93, 96% are the votes to build this new facility because the people have a mind to work. And what's most gratifying to me is that, unbeknownst to all you, there was a handful of, of people that really, when I began to lead the charge to, to start saying, we need to talk about our facilities, there was 100 signatures on a letter to my bishop, my boss, who said, get this man out of him and get him to hear and get him to cease and desist right away. But I'm proud to tell you this, that the loving nature of the congregation and the way that we were willing to pray for, I looked at that letter just the other day, and more than 10 families on there have given to the build campaign. That to me is astonishing. Because we understand the fact of the matter is that when we allow God to get involved in our plans and when we follow God in our plans, hearts are often changed, which is why we give up on no one ever. Because when the Lord is faithful to us and we're faithful to him and the people have a mind to work, great things will happen. So today we come to this day our Build Campaign Celebration. When a great work for God is accomplished, we praise and we party. We praise and we absolutely party. Here's what our foremothers and forefathers in the faith did. When the temple walls were completely built in Jerusalem, here's what happened in Nehemiah chapter 8. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the fifth day of the seventeenth month, of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women who, and all who were able to understand. He read from it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood a bunch of guys with Jewish names. And there were a bunch on the left, too. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, all the way through... There was opposition. There was opposition 
and their support. And because the people had a mind for God and a mind to work, the walls were built to half their height and then to all of their height. And so in Nehemiah 8.10, he finishes like this. Nehemiah says, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have prepared nothing. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, today is a day of celebrating God's great works, past, present, and yet to come. There will always be opposition to God's work, and there will always be support for God's work. And our job is to lay into God and be the people who have a mind to work for Him in the world. And because of that, I say praise the Lord to all of our forefathers and foremothers in the faith. And because of that, I say praise the Lord for that which has been accomplished to this day through this congregation in this moment. And because of that, we pray and we plan for which that which is to come. So on this exciting day, I want to, to conclude with an announcement and, an, a cha- and a challenge. This is our 174th year as a congregation. So I announced to you that by the end of June, I'll put together some sort of a blue ribbon commi- committee that will plan for the big event, which is our 175th anniversary as a congregation here in Marion. And I challenge you to do everything that you can within your life and within your support by strong, God's strong hands to push forward towards the new millennium, a second, the end of a second century and the beginning of a third century um, for those who had come to be part of our congregation.